0: 40,000 delegates in a country with a reported 60,000 political prisoners and a climate summit at the Lamborghini Conference Center. Egypt's repressive state then, an unlikely place, human rights groups say, for humanity to save itself from itself. Physics, not politics, demanding we break our addiction to oil and gas. We have to cut greenhouse gas pollution nearly a half by 2030. Instead, we're on course to increase it, Ten percent. The 100 billion dollars a year promised 13 years back by rich polluting nations is still broken.
1: Here in Africa, home to many nations considered most vulnerable to climate change, food insecurity. Hunger follows four years of intense drought in the Horn of Africa. We are all here today because we continue to use the thin blue shell of atmosphere surrounding our planet as an open sewer.
0: How many more wake-up calls does the world, do world leaders actually need? A third of Pakistan underwater, the worst flooding in Nigeria in a decade. This year, the worst drought in 500 years in Europe, in a thousand years in the US, and the worst on record in China.
2: The Conference of Parties, or COP, is to me like a toy train that stops at new destinations every year. Global heads come aboard to play a round of blame game even as the ride teeters dangerously close to an environmental apocalypse. Well, last year at COP26, remember that India had become a whipping boy for pushing for a phase down of coal instead of a phase out of coal. Well, this year at COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt, India hit back. It asked why just coal? All fossil fuels, some of them still used in massive amounts by developed countries, need to be phased down. And in a rather surprising turn of events some of these very developed countries that india called out supported its stand mr timmermans on the cover decision
3: consultations india had made a submission on uh, in, for a phase down of fossil fuels the eu has shown support for it but it does not figure in the list put out by the presidency Today, uh, late last night. And I'm wondering, is the EU going to be working with India to have it put in an explicit mention of a phase down of fossil fuels?
0: Well, obviously, we're all in favour of phasing down all fossil fuels, uh, and uh, we are in support of any call to phase down all fossil fuels. Uh, but we also have to m- make sure that this call does not diminish the earlier agreement we had on phasing down coal. So it, if it comes on top of what we had al- already agreed. ...in Glasgow, then uh, the EU will support India's proposal.
2: That was Franz Timmermans, an executive vice president... ...at the European Union, leading the work on its first climate law. He was replying to a query from my colleague Urmi Goswami... ...ET's resident climate and environment expert. Urmi is covering the COP27 in Sharmil Sheikh, ...and she will join us in today's episode... ...in which we look at India's many interventions at COP27 as well as what the country needs to meet its own decarbonisation targets. It's the 18th of November. I'm your host, Mugdhawar here from ET Prime. And today, we'll look at how India is playing bad cop to the developed world at COP27 on The Morning Brief. At this year's climate summit, India stayed away from setting any fresh targets for decarbonisation and reiterated Prime Minister Narendra Modi's goals from COP26. But it may still come out as having held the historical emitters accountable. European countries, which were caught in an energy crisis due to the Russia-Ukraine war since the beginning of the year, recently decided to label investments in gas as climate-friendly. India stood up and called out the bluff. India argued that the selective labeling of some energy sources as green even though they were responsible for greenhouse gas emissions, has no basis in science. Well, India didn't stop here. It reiterated the obligation of the developed world to compensate countries affected by extreme weather events through a loss and damage fund. India also pushed for a sharp definition of climate finance, arguing that the vagueness around the term allowed developed countries to greenwash their finances and pass off loans as climate-related aid. It is also pushing back against the move by developed countries to club all top emitters, particularly the top 20, including India and China, for making intense emission cuts. So is India emerging as the messiah for the developing world? And as it also garners support from the developed world for its call to phase down all fossil fuel, can India really become a global climate leader? Or will criticism that India is not doing enough to break away from its reliance on coal keep it from being seen as a role model? A lot of it will depend on what note COP27 ends on today, which is Friday the 18th of November, and whether many of India's interventions will find place in the cover text, which will reflect the final agreement from all the negotiations at the summit. As of Thursday, the Egyptian presidency had made a list of what could go into the cover text. India's proposals weren't part of that list. Also, while India has called out the bluff of developed nations, can it meet its own targets for a cleaner environment? My colleague Urmi Goswami, who has been tracking the global discourse at COP27 over the past two weeks, is here to help us break down India's pitch at the summit. Urmi, thank you so much for joining us from Egypt. Must have been very busy for you there over the last few days. But of course, you have attended COP for, uh, what, over a decade now, right? But this year, you know, given the energy crisis we are seeing across the world because of the war, so many natural calamities that have hit countries like Pakistan and others, what is the mood this time? And of course, this is being referred to as the COP of implementation as well. So, what do you think is different this time at COP27?
3: You know, I've attended many COPs, as you said, 13 to be precise, and this is my 13th COP. As far as the mood of is concerned, you know, it's funny, once the negotiation starts, if you go to the negotiating side of the COP, I think it's the same kind of thing from every year, uh, you know, all-nighters being pulled by negotiators. As a matter of fact, this COP, started on Sunday, November 6th, and negotiators were already here. They're normally here sometimes for pre-meetings because various, uh, especially developing country groups, because there's so many, they get together earlier and they have these meetings of their own. On the 5th of November, which is actually the day before the official opening of the COP, negotiators pulled not only an all-nighter, a 20-hour-long meeting just to thrash out the agenda items. So it kind of felt that people were, you know, just working as if it was the end of the COP right from the beginning. So yeah, it feels in some ways similar and in some ways dissimilar.
2: Okay, so in some ways similar and many ways dissimilar as well. But what's the mood like at the India Pavilion this time, Urmi, Especially given that Prime Minister has given it a miss this time. And the two coming, uh, you know, after, uh, you know, his big speech at Glasgow last year. What is it like this time?
3: Well, the mood is still brilliant, uh, I would say, at the India Pavilion. The India Pavilion is themed on life, the lifestyles for environment, the big mission that India has launched. India seemed a little quieter in the first week. And because India did not have its head of government, it seemed as if India was missing. In that sense, and it had its events in the pavilion, but since then, in especially in over the weekend, India's kind of had come back into the sort of limelight. Even before, it wasn't that it was quiet, as in not making some interventions, particularly on finance, which is which India took as a focus issue. Only you know, picking
2: up from a point that you mentioned about how in the first few days it looked like India was missing. From the action, But of course, in the last few days, we have seen the environment minister be very vocal about several issues, be it the loss and damage fund. And of course, he did talk about the fact that all fossil fuels need to be phased down and not just coal, which a lot of developing countries are dependent on. How has that played out? Do you think India is fighting the battle for the developing world? which it should, of course, but is it becoming the messiah for the developing world? But is it finding any common ground with the developed world as well? Because I think you spoke to several representatives from the European Union. You said that India is getting some kind of support on its call to phase out all fossil fuels as well. But overall, what has the response been from the the developed world?
3: You know, it's a funny thing you asked me the question that way, because The fact is that India negotiates a lot. And of course, India is part of the G77 and China. But the developing countries, you know, there are like 130 odd countries. So it's a huge group. So there are subgroups within the G77 and China. And India largely negotiates from within the group called LMDC, which is the short form for like-minded developing countries. It includes countries like Saudi Arabia, China, Venezuela, Ecuador. Now, the interesting thing is that its close negotiating partners, Saudi Arabia and China, have not said a thing. For China, this is an interesting situation because it doesn't really want any kind of reference to phasing down of any kind of fossil fuels. The support it has received, actually, is from the European Union. They have shown a great degree of interest in supporting. But as Franz Timmermans, who is the executive vice president of the commission and the man in charge of the European Green Deal, said that, look, it has to be Glasgow plus. So in Glasgow, the world agreed to phase down unabated coal, which is basically all coal. And it has to be more than that.
0: The European Union is here to move forward, not backwards. Glasgow gave us sound foundations. Here in Sharm el-Sheikh, we want to set out a path forward. The EU is ready to make progress on the global goal on adaptation. We are ready to address loss and damage, because too many countries cannot shoulder the climate crisis on their own. We need to close the gap on climate finance, including by collectively doubling adaptation finance.
3: And the United Kingdom has been supportive. You've had Tuvalu, which is the first country to sign the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty, which has come out in support, Norway and Colombia. So now think about it. It's more developed countries that have come out in support than developing countries.
2: How India uses this support will be interesting. It has to play a fine balancing game says Urmi, between keeping its vast population that depends on coal happy and gradually transitioning to more environmentally friendly forms of energy. And we all know that
3: the transition from coal is not just a switch over, you know, from that you're using coal today and then let's turn over and start using the sun or wind uh, or or hydro or what have you. It is actually a transition of systems. It's also a transition of systems that go beyond the energy system. You have states whose whose whole revenue model is dependent on coal, right? And what do you do with them? You have to think of finances in a different way. They stop receiving the, the royalty for coal and then that's it. You know, they will be in bigger trouble than they are. So, therefore, you have to think of those transitions. So, India will need to sort of give that comfort or make, it, make that argument that, look, we are not trying to hide behind this fossil fuel face down and trying to hide coal under it. We are saying that, as they have been saying, right, they said that this is rooted in science. Science calls for rapid reduction of emissions. It doesn't qualify that you should only do away with one fossil fuel. It talks about exiting all fossil fuels. Obviously, it is likely to get support from small island states. I'm also told, but I have not been able to verify it, that some least developed countries or LDCs, as they're called, are, uh, which would be some countries in Africa, are also showing support for this move. So yeah, if India thinks that it wants to be a messiah for the developing world, I think it should drop that idea of being a messiah for anybody. But What it should do is show leadership. And I would say that with this move, India
2: has shown leadership. But how is India walking the talk when it comes to initiatives on more sustainable forms of energy?
3: India has been on a path of accelerated renewable energy capacity addition. And that's true. It's also true that India is looking at hydrogen. India has, over the last seven years reduced its fossil fuel subsidies by 73 percent it actually is among the best performers in the G20 on this issue and it is hoped that as India becomes the G20 presidency beginning 1st December that it will reiterate and revive this campaign
2: of reducing fossil fuel subsidies Of course, all of the noises India has been making on behalf of developing countries only become legit if its proposals become part of something called the cover text. But what is the cover text? Well, in a nutshell, it is the point of this whole summit. It's the point where all participating nations come to an agreement on how they will together tackle climate change. Have India's concerns made it to that list yet? Well, as of Thursday, no. But it opens up the debate to a much wider spectrum and puts the onus firmly on the developed countries. We have
3: to accept one thing. There is a scientific reason why the conversation has been focused on coal, because yes, all fossil fuels are bad, but coal is perhaps the worst. So in a priority list, if you were to do they said coal is number one. But the conversation on fossil fuels gets stuck for many reasons. Okay. One of the reasons being Of course, lobbies, they work really hard and they have always tried to work the system. It's not a new thing. But also, if you look at the news, you'll see the gas deals that have been struck very recently, including by the host country. How do you, you know, you have to sort of get over it. What I find very, very enthusing, and this is in some ways something we can take back with us, we know that Europe has been in the news not just because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the energy crisis that has followed, but on the way it has been trying to buy up gas. Its dependence on gas has sort of, it's now for everybody to see. And though they are still trying to buy gas from everywhere else, remember, they're the first sort of party, so to speak, that actually gave what is, well, people would and rightly say qualified support to the Indian submission or Indian
2: ask. Urmi, you know, let's come to, uh, of course, the most important part of all these discussions at COP, and that is the climate financing. Now, India, of course, put down its long-term strategy document, but even there, they have said that the need for climate financing will be in the tens of trillions of dollars by 2050. They haven't given an absolute figure. There are reports And experts suggesting that this could range anywhere between $7 trillion to $12 trillion by 2050. But, you know, what are you picking up, especially on the sidelines, in the negotiation rooms? What exactly is India looking for when it comes to climate financing?
3: So India is looking for money to help make the transition. India cannot, you know, as things stand now, do all of this on its own steam. Let me give you a quick example. If India needs about 170 odd billion every year to fulfill, to meet, to achieve the goals it set out in its NDC, not this current one, the earlier one. But if you look at the 2019 2020 figures, the total amount of green finance is what's tagged as green, is 44 billion. And that's nothing, and of which, about 83% is funded domestically. So, and this is, this transition is a game where you need a lot of upfront money because at one level, you need a lot of upfront money and the other side is policy. And if finance doesn't flow, then there is a problem. Another statistic, just to give you a sense of how financial flows are strained, in the arena of solar in 2020, some 200 odd billion were invested of which most of it went to the OECD countries and China. 5% went to Africa, and very little comes to the other. I mean, there's very little left for, you know, OECD, after OECD plus China get the investments. So uh, clearly, we need finance. So India has argued for, of course, that developed countries keep their promise of $100 billion a year, which they said they'll be able to to meet the target in 2023, that's next year. And of course, it's involved, they're currently negotiating in the UNFCCC, the new goal, the new quantified goal
2: for 2025 and beyond. Going into COP27, India dropped a few of its self-defined targets set under the Panchamrit pledge by the Prime Minister last year. Here's what the Prime Minister had announced in Glasgow last year.
1: क्लाइमेट चेंज पर इस वैश्विक मंथन के बीच मैं भारत की ओर से इस चुनौती से निपटने के लिए पांच अमृत तत्व रखना चाहता हूं। पहला भारत 2030 तक अपनी नॉन फोसिल एनर्जी कैपेसिटी को 500 गीगावाट तक पहुंचाएगा। दूसरा भारत 2030 तक अपनी 50 परसेंट एनर्जी रिक्वायरमेंट रिन्यूएबल एनर्जी से पूरी करेगा तीसरा भारत अब से लेकर 2030 तक के कुल प्रोजेक्टेड कार्बन एमिशन में एक बिलियन टन की कमी करेगा चौथा 2030 तक भारत अपनी अर्थव्यवस्था की कार्बन इंटेंसिटी को 45% से भी कम करेगा और पांचवा वर्ष
2: in August this year, India updated its nationally determined contribution, which is essentially its climate action plan to be communicated to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. It removed its target of establishing 500 gigawatt of renewable energy capacity by 2030. It also dropped the commitment to reduce 1 billion tons of of carbon emission by 2030. Just for reference, India's total emissions in 2021 was around 2.7 billion tons. Here's what Environment Minister Bhupendra Yadav said at COP27 on Monday.
1: In August 2022, India updated its NDCs with the updated NDCs we 10 further committed to, first, reduce the emission intensity of its GDP to 45% below 2005 levels by 2030. Second, achieve about 50% cumulative electric power installed capacity from non-fossil fuel-based energy resources by 2030. We are now presenting India's long-term low-carbon development strategy that articulate India's vision and action plan for achieving its NDC goal and target of net-zero emission by 2070.
2: As India presented its long-term strategy document this week, there was also criticism that the document did not cite any interim targets or any estimates of the amount of climate financing the country will need. Let me now go across to Vaibhav Chaturvedi, fellow at Delhi-based think tank, Council on Energy, Environment and Water, who is joining us over a phone call from Sharmil Sheikh.
4: So first of all, uh, I don't think that some targets have been omitted. The announcements were made. But there's always been the case that some of these targets will be domestic in nature, right? And some will be officially submit to the international like United Nations Forum. So that's what has also happened. A bunch of the targets announced last year in the Panchamrit Pledge. They have been included in the international kind of commitment. And some of these now will be a part of the domestic pledge. So we should not say that these are off the table. It is just that these are not part of the international climate pledge, right? So India always had this domestic renewable energy target, right? Like, for example, 175 gigawatt target for 22, uh, the earlier, the 500 gigawatt target for renewable energy 2030. All those, those anyways, have been our domestic pledges, right? So those, the domestic pledges still remain. Second, India's long-term strategy. Uh, you are right, it, I mean, many other countries in their long-term strategies have got some hard targets, intermediate targets, right? Uh, but also, uh, the process of creation of intermediate targets is a lot of a long process. So the way we should look at this current long-term strategy document, is that this is more of a guiding document. So, it identified priority sectors. It says these are the interventions we are going to think about. It talks about finance, research, international cooperation, adaptation, many of those things. But, of course, in the next iterations, the expectation is that we should move from it being a high-level guiding document to more targets coming into, more kind of clarity on the roadmap, which are the priority sectors. Those kind of elements will be added in the subsequent iterations. They should be taken only as first draft of this you know, document.
2: Yeah. Right. Vipo, uh, I also wanted to you know, uh, quickly talk to you about the, the ground realities when it comes to non-fossil fuel energy as well. From uh, what I understand, as of June of this year, India's non-fossil fuel capacity was about 168 gigawatts. Now, even though we have done away with the target of 500 gigawatts of non-fossil fuel capacity by 2030 there are estimates that suggest that India would need capacity of up to 300 to 400 gigawatts for non fossil fuels. Mm. So, is is that going to be feasible to achieve and what needs to be done for uh, India to achieve that? Yeah.
4: See, the notion of feasibility is actually a very dynamic notion, right? When we were sitting in 2014, everybody was saying, most experts in India were saying, solar is not feasible, should not even look at solar, electric vehicles are not feasible. And that was the debate in 2014. Now, just look at 2022. just eight years, the whole debate has changed, right? Solar is the thing that everybody is going for. Electric vehicles are the thing in the uh, mobility sector, right? So the feasibility, the notion of feasibility will change the moment markets will change in a very big way. So the one indicator that I look at very keenly is who is investing, where investments are happening, where private sector is putting his money. So that's a sure shot sure when that they are reasonably sure See, they are the ones who are putting the money on the table. So they are reasonably sure that whenever they are putting their money, that the chances of returns and positive returns are going to be very reasonable and realistic. And from that perspective, we are already seeing tremendous investment happening in the mobility sector, like, uh, you know, even uh, big players like Maruti, now all Maruti, Tata, Mahindra, which are the biggest sellers in automobile, passenger automobile segment, all of them have very huge range of electric cars already introduced two-wheeler segment is already moving in the electricity generation sector we see so much progress happening on solar and wind in the hydrogen sector we know that reliance and adani is the biggest players in the energy sector in india have already put a lot of money on table have very significant targets of production so if you look at all of these together clearly both the emission intensity number as well as the progress in the power sector it is about you know it looks like it is going to be feasible and the question also is, let's say, just on the basis of market progress, we are not able to achieve the target. That is where policy comes from. In.
2: India has also sought a clearer definition of climate financing, stating that it should be predictable financing in the form of grants or low-cost loans. India has also started taking steps to attract climate financing. Last week, the finance minister announced sovereign green bonds, The money raised through these bonds will go into public sector projects that help in reducing carbon intensity of the economy. There's also a call for India to establish a green taxonomy framework which will essentially create standards to classify sectors and investments as green. This will especially help in attracting private sector financing. But how much climate financing does India need? Well, the government has stayed away from putting down an absolute figure in its long-term strategy document and has only stated that the country will need tens of trillions of dollars by 2050. Some reports state that India may need anywhere between $7 trillion to $12 trillion of investment by 2050. We ask Vaibhav on what his think tank's estimates are.
4: So let me say that first of all, investment could be or finance needs could be defined in many different ways, right? So the numbers that you're putting, they are like the high-level investment needed for this sector, right? So, CW estimates, for example, there's a like $10 trillion would be needed for a net-zero transition across the power generation, hydrogen, and transport sectors up to 2070 for achieving the net-zero goal, right? So, that is high-level investment number. A lot of this investment will probably come from the Indian banking system, right? Now, of these, the domestic banks will, of course, finance a lot of it. Let's say 60% of it is financed to domestic money, right? Now, 40% is going to come, the expectation is it is like the FDI kind of thing. Right, so the question is now from 10 trillion dollars, you have reduced it to four trillion dollars, which is like you are saying this is international finance that should come to India in this low carbon sectors. Now, out of this four trillion, a lot of it will be just private finance coming, like the usual finance comes in, right? But we are talking about now, out of this four trillion, how much of this can be grants, how much of this can be low cost finance, and how much of this can be maybe usual investment that happens, you know? So, we are not even talking about the usual investment. So, out of let's say this four trillion dollars. Maybe usual investments are 2 trillion or 3 trillion. So the residual is where we say, you know, we need low-cost finance. And that is an estimate. That, of course, we need to do in a much more detailed way. CW has its own estimates for that. But largely from the Government of India perspective, it has to make that kind of assessment. To not just, is not high-level interest numbers as good, you know, they're useful as a starting point. So the real thing is, what do you want to ask? What is the ask? So 10 trillion is not the ask, right? We're not going to get all the money from the developed world, right? So the ask is, What is the loans that you need? And what is the grants maybe what you need? You know, something like that. That sort of estimate the government definitely is already looking into and that is something very important for this whole process to move forward.
2: I asked Webhav the same question that I asked Urmi. Can India become a global climate leader? He too is optimistic.
4: Well, India is consistently demonstrating climate ambition and leadership now across the years, especially last seven, eight years. So, and the first big example was the International Solar Alliance, right? That is India's initiative. Then the second big example is now the Coalition for Disaster Resilient Infrastructure that happened last time. Now India also announced its net zero. I mean, there was no need to announce its net zero, right? It was a dramatic shift in position itself. Because till then, India never announced an absolute target or reduction target. With the net zero, now the target has become an absolute reduction target, right? So, now India has also taken that. The latest one is, in fact, the announcement of a domestic carbon market. Right, that is also an instrument for decarbonization. And the first time, the government of India said that we'll now also put a price on carbon through this mechanism. Right? So there are many, many ways in which the ambition is being displayed. So it's a, one has to look at not just one action, but a collection of actions to really look at how you know ambition has been, been enhanced and how the climate leadership is being demonstrated by India. And it's very clear it is demonstrating climate leadership. But cooperation is also going to be part of the larger you know, discourse on climate
2: the world is witnessing some of the worst climate catastrophes. This year, Kenya was gripped by its worst drought in decades, while countries such as Pakistan and Nigeria were besieged by floods. In the face of such disasters, the COP has over the years come to be criticised for the indecision, the blame game and the dragging of feet by countries on taking action. In fact, Swedish climate activist Greta Thunberg who became popular over her protest to draw attention to climate change, dismissed the summit for quote-unquote greenwashing, lying and cheating. And she chose to skip COP27. By the time we approach COP28, we would have faced more unimaginable loss. While some progress has been made, India and the world need to act faster. It's literally a race against time. Well, that's it for today. This is your host, Mugdawar here on The Morning Brief, the official podcast of The Economic Times. This episode was produced by Sumit Pandey, sound designer Rajas Nayak and Indranil Bhattacharji. Executive producers, Anupriya Bahadur, Anirban Chaudhary and Arijit Barman. Do share this episode if you liked it and listen to new episodes of The Morning Brief every Tuesday, Thursday and Friday on all your favourite listening platforms, Amazon Music, Ghana.com, Spotify… Apple and Google podcasts and the economic times website. And of course, our very own audio platform ET play also tune in to the latest podcast from ET startup school, your 12 step guide from idea to enterprise with marquee startup founders. All clips used in this episode belong to respective owners. Credits are given in the description.